This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name's Tom Jennings. And I'm Joachim Thiessen. And this is a new podcast that Joachim um, approached me with uh, some months ago now. And basically what we wanted to do was to, in the same way in which the Criterion cast, and I think it's probably just uh, take a quick aside now to sort of acknowledge the fact that there will be... many similarities between this show and the Criterion cast. And I don't know necessarily it's not kind of outright copying. I think it's because they had a uh, a pretty good idea that we wanted to kind of export over to the Masters of Cinema collection. And what we wanted to do was to go through the collection in the same way that kind of the Criterion cast does and obviously put our own spin on many of the releases. Now, we've decided we're not going to go through them kind of spine number um, order because I think... Um, until we kind of get a kind of a decent flow going, we didn't want to kind of ruin some of the uh, prestige titles like Sunrise, which would have been the first one to go through. And I suppose it's worth taking a minute out really to kind of talk about um, what kind of masters of cinema are and how we kind of came to discover these titles. Joachim, what was your kind of first introduction to them? I think I got to them via the Criterion Collection, hearing people compare them and then finding their titles on play.com and pages where I can see that, hang on a minute, there's a spine number here. That must mean something. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was my uh, my entry into the Masters of Cinema and just figuring out what kind of movies they are putting out. These, not these um, mainstream films, but you can see odd sci-fi films and older movies like in the Criterion, Criterion Collection. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I when I, I mean, I, I, I suppose I have some sort of. I mean, it must be some sort of mental addiction because if you if you stick a spine number on something, they, I am that's it. It's like I don't know. I just feel this kind of compulsion to collect them. And I mean, I started probably around about two thousand and six, and that was when I began buying Criterion titles. And again, I think it might have been quite a similar situation. Really, I. I the thing that used to frustrate me about the Criterion Collection was because they were obviously based in America and they never knew you couldn't buy them natively in Britain. And I, I remember sort of thinking there must be something else out there which we have here, which is like the Criterion Collection. And I, I, I remember, well, I've, I've got many titles that have been put out by Eureka who eventually would kind of buy the kind of Masters of Cinema and start putting out these these titles. And I remember kind of my first kind of what first one I purchased was Sunrise. And this is just a, a kind of a tragic tale, really, because I have bought that film three times on various formats through Masters of Cinema and never watched it until last year. But again, I think it was this whole kind of stick a spine number and something and Tom will start collecting it. And one, and one of the things that I really, really like about Masters of Cinema is that although they're not as prolific, um, with releases as Criterion, I do think they. Um, I, I don't know if I suppose daring is probably the wrong word, but I do think they have kind of gone for titles, especially things like animation, which you just don't get in the Criterion collection. And there are a lot of titles that have come out from Criterion and have also come out on Masters of Cinema, things like kind of For All Mankind and M. And one of the things I particularly enjoy is like, especially with kind of like the M disc, there was, you know, quite a few kind of comparisons that the uh, Masters of Cinema release was kind of better than the Criterion um, edition they had put out and things like that. And there's a nice kind of, I think there's a nice symmetry between the two kind of the companies and what they release. And, you know, I have bought, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have bought titles from Master Cinema that I already own on Criterion just to kind of compare. And you kind of, you can sit there for hours staring at the picture, trying to mo- noti- notice the most minute things. And it's it's for perhaps for, for people who are a bit more kind of anal about that type of thing. But, you know, certainly it's something, I mean, I, I've actually bought them all and I'm actually going through them again now 
uh, picking up the Blu-rays that are coming out on reissue. And um, there's a few titles as well which come out on the DVD which are no longer available, which we will get to one day. But, I mean, is there anything you'd like to add to that? You were talking about how Masters of Cinema and Eureka were intertwined, and I thought we could just talk quickly about how Masters of Cinema started. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Because it was uh, four, four men, I think, who had their individual websites and joined under the Masters of Cinema heading. And then afterwards, uh, in 2004, they were acquired by Eureka Entertainment. And um, I think they they serve as uh, sort of curators, don't they, for yeah. Eureka? Yes, yeah, as I understand, yeah. And I mean, Eureka's another one of these, these um, distributors who... You know, you have to sort of thank God that they're around, really, because it's people like them and Criterion Kino, people like that, who they do put out titles which are just other film studios. You know, even the ones who probably own the rights to the films they put out have no interest in doing so. And I mean, there is a, a when I was, I suppose, but after I left university, I think that was when I really sort of my film diet expanded considerably and that was the obviously the experience of studying film at university and you you found um I, I when i sort of came across eureka i remember sort of picking up a few of the films there and you did pay a little bit more for them but it seemed worth it because you know what, what, what i suppose one of the things that i wh- why i like collecting these types of releases that i do think um I, I see it as kind of an investment into film. I know that's a, perhaps a slightly worthy thing to say, but you know, it, it, even when I sort of buy titles from Criterion and Master Cinema, and I don't particularly like them, I still think that it's important in most cases that the films that they're actually working on do get, um, you know, do get to be released and preserved. I mean, certainly, I you know, the Passion of Joan of Arc was one which was, you know, I mean, I love the film anyway, but it's nice that the fact that the money that you spend on that is going back into projects, you know, for film preservation. And certainly these are studios, sorry, distributors, who invest so much in that. And these are, you know, when you see these kind of um, restorations that they do, they're incredibly respectful to the source material. These aren't kind of like, you know, you know they don't apply massive amounts of digital noise reduction it's very much i think um aimed at people who care about film i mean is that something that you felt as well in the past definitely i think i i feel that i'm investing as you said in the like it sounds a bit pretentious but i'm investing in film history and film preservation by adding a few extra pounds to their price, I feel like I'm contributing to their further work and their further restorations of future projects. So when a film costs like £15, £14, or even Criterion where they are a bit more expensive, you can go up to $40 or something, I feel like it's still worth it because I'm getting a prime product and I'm still... Um, I'm still contributing to their further work, so it's definitely worth it and something I keep in mind all the time, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing about Master Cinema, I mean, they are not, when it comes to kind of extras and things like that, they're not in the same league as Criterion, I don't think. I mean, you know, some of the Criterion extras, I mean, that's why you're buying the discs. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've stored it um, on the waterfront. And it's like the, the list of, you know, extras on it is incredible and master cinema don't tend to have you know you, you, you very rarely get double editions do you with you know another disc just crammed full of extras they normally do they with the re-releases now they're doing the blu-ray and dvd combo packs but one of the things i do like and really why you know, buying 
um, their dish is so good. Is it? And it's a, something which I don't perhaps think gets perhaps as much attention as it deserves. But I really do like the booklets that come with them because they do they do really complement the film. And you know, they're, they're always, in my experience, incredibly interesting reads from normally someone who's associated or has a vested interest in that film. And also, I mean, the other thing I like about Martin Martyrs, and this is down to that sad collector thing, the steel book editions they put out as well and i know it's only obvious it's kind of merely sort of window dressing for what's inside but i do like that kind of you feel like you are getting a premium product as opposed to the you know the, the mainstream studios and i mean especially in england i mean I, they've just opened a test a, a tesco super store opposite where i live and you would have thought if, if if you were to go over there and try and buy something that's a little bit obscure it is just you know the main the main hollywood studios discs that you can buy there isn't any kind of outlet for kind of world cinema and i mean i, I don't know about you I, I buy most of my master cinema stuff off amazon and it, it's a shame I, it, it's a shame that you have to buy them f- from online there is nowhere really in britain now i mean one of our, our major chains hmv which was kind of the place where you could buy um you know although you'd pay more you could buy you know if you wanted to walk down the street and buy some art house stuff you could go in there and get it that's actually just closed now as well and i i do i do fear a little bit for companies like masters of cinema because it is obviously another outlet i mean i think they'll always have that kind of niche thing there but i mean i i I would pretty much wage that i don't think this is a kind of um a distributor that is making millions every year okay so and this is something we kind of discussed about just before um, which I was recording, which was, you know, what what are our top three kind of Masters of Cinema releases? So what what are yours? Um, we can do, um, like, back and forth, yeah, yeah, from three, two, one. Okay. So um, my third choice would be, well, it's a kind of a cheat, but it's uh, Double-Ed Indemnity and The Lost Weekend, the two Billy Wilder films. Yeah. They were kind of complementary releases when they were released, and definitely a lot of extra material that i love going through with lots of uh lots of uh, different uh background material that you can uh, get and that uh documentary by that um german director which i can't remember but he covers different sides of wilder's career yeah. so that was definitely one of my top uh, releases yeah and i mean my number three as well was double indemnity i mean that was um uh, that is just a joy of a film to watch yeah. it's one of them i mean to mention the film yeah yeah i know no need to mention the film but i mean we, we will get there one day but i mean it was uh at university we watched that and it was yeah, we are doing a film noir course at uh, muni and that was one of the first films we watched and um i remember purchasing the video uh the vhs immediately and afterwards i bought the dvd which was a pretty crappy release and then that blu-ray came out and um yeah it was an absolute joy um what was your number two my number two is Touch of Evil by Orson Welles. Not only for the film itself, which is stunning, but also the myth and the history surrounding it and everything that is crammed into this um, this wonderful documentary is behind. Also, you have three different audio commentaries. You have three different aspect ratios. Uh, it's just a cinephile stream release, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken, I, I talked about the Touch of Evil release on the 24 Frames cast when it came out, actually. So uh, um, I can't remember what episode that is now, but I don't want to kind of shamelessly plug that. But no, definitely, it's, it's, it's not my number two, but it's definitely one of the best releases they've ever put out. And that's one of the rare ones, I think, where, you know, it well, it did come packed with extras that are just incredible, you know, and, and all the different versions of it and things like that. But uh, my number... Pr- uh, when, we, when we're talking about uh, Touch of Evil, do you have a preferred version of the aspect ratio? Or do you remember? Or... 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like the one. That, to be honest, I like the sixteen nine one. To be brutally honest with you, yeah. Um, and I always feel a little bit uncomfortable with that because, um, in a way, we kind of moan about kind of pan and scanning. And I was watching the Criterion version of Paths of Glory, and I've seen Paths of Glory in the cinema as well. And um, I, I was sort of sitting there thinking, yeah, is this film being kind of blown up somewhat? And it's a, it's a strange one. I think in in circumstances like that, I think because. Um, I mean, the, the worst example I've ever seen of that is the World at War series, which was just completely butchered from a uh, sort of a 4-3 frame and then blown up for widescreen technique. It's, it's awful. It's an absolute mess. And I, I don't think that's happened with these releases. I do think it's they've managed to kind of preserve the kind of the, the you know, preserve as much of the screen as possible. And but perhaps it's just because I, I, I think Touch of Evil... I think it needs to be seen on a big, biggest, biggest canvas as possible. Really, I think it is so cinematic, and I think I've got a fifteen-inch TV in my loft, and seeing it on that, I think was the close. I have seen it in the cinema as well, but certainly seeing it in the sixteen-nine ratio, that was the closest I've, I've seen to replicating that theatrical experience. So, for me, it was that. And I know other people might kind of disagree, and certainly when we get to that disc, I'm sure. Um, you know, I think we we both had an idea in mind for a guest, and I think they will have quite vocal opinions on that. So, we'll leave that one for another day. But my number two was for. Fritz Lang's M and this was another film that I saw at university and I I, I, I I saw it and I was pretty much blown away by it but I didn't see it again for, for years until I picked it up on um, uh, Master Cinema and it was actually a bit of a, a, a good one this one because it was on Amazon listed one day for like three ninety nine, and it was actually an error for some reason I don't know it occasionally happens on Amazon you'll suddenly see a, you'll suddenly see something that has a ridiculous price and Amazon used to stop the well they used to just um let you get away with the order and then they would send you an email basically saying we know we screwed up but we're still going to honor it they don't actually do that anymore because the same thing happened when they put silent running out they actually listed it for 3.99 so of course everyone yeah yeah, everyone pre-ordered it thinking oh my god what a bargain and then there was this sort of email going around which was like basically tough shit but for this case with them they didn't do that and i remember thinking 3.99 i could not believe it and there, there was a there was a, uh, they put a really uh, kind of comparisons up with the Criterion one saying that this was like the definitive edition and this is the best M's ever looked. As I understand, that's actually been trumped by a release that came out in Germany last year on Blu-ray, which apparently is the, the best ever. But whatever, I still think it's an incredible film. We are going to get to it. But it was certainly, um, it, it was one of the first Masters of Cinema Blu-rays I actually bought as well. And um, I remember sort of thinking, oh, my God, you know, if this is how good they're going to be, I'm going to have to sort of go back and rebuy um, all these films again, which I'm obviously slowly in the process of doing at the moment. But, OK, your number one. My number one is also my favourite film of all time. It's The Passion of Joan of Arc by Dreyer. And uh, I don't know if I want to get too deep in it because I haven't written down any thoughts on it or gotten into the big theories about it so we should save that for a later date but the release is stunning the booklet is it's fucking huge it's 100 plus pages you have a wonderful scores or uh, wonderful scores you have two very different scores i'm not that keen on the uh, modern version of it but um the only thing that I found missing was the uh, Voices of Light score because that is ingrained in my head, company with that film. But um, I'm anticipating Criterion's uh, later release this year. I think they were coming up with a new yeah. master, so that yeah. would be exciting, yeah. Yeah, and that would be definitely one of those ones where it, I, I, 
although I've already got this release and I'm very happy with it, you just, yeah, you, I will have to pick it up from Criterion as well, I think, because it's just, it's, I think it's one of those films, again, that we were talking about before, it's one of those films that's just, I think it's too important, the film, uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. I, I think it deserves to be kind of double dipped and treble dipped and probably quadruple dipped. You know, it, it is that yeah. good a release. But my, my favourite, um, Master Morris and it is the first binary in both the DVDs and the Blu-rays, and that is uh, Murnau's Sunrise. And you know, again, like I said, this I've, I purchased the original DVD release, and they put out a special edition. Um, I had like two discs. I put purchased that. Then I bought the Blu-ray, and I never watched any of them. And I, even when I was buying the Blu-ray, I was like, for Christ's sake, you've bought this film three times now, and you've never watched it. And then, um, yeah, I got down. Uh, I think it was last year. About this time last year, in fact, and watched it, and um, yeah, it instantly. I I kicked myself for not having not watched it before, but it's also one of the things where it, it's a, such a joy to see it that it's almost worth the wait. And um, certainly when we get to that, because it is just a, a stunning Blu-ray release and such a good example of what you can do um, in high definition for an old film. Because I think that's something. I mean, when I bought it, the person in the shop said to me, "Is it even worth getting these older films on Blu-ray?" And it's the, the once I watched that, the the answer was a, a you know a, a very much a, a yes. And I think that's one of yeah. You know, we will get to it later, of course. But um, no, Sunrise, uh, Murnau, definitely one of just. I, I personally think it's one of the greatest films ever and uh, yeah. certainly a pretty incredible release. So wrapping that up, um, should we just have a quick chat about what we've kind of had uh, recently been released um, from Masters of Cinema, which was the Von Sternberg film, The Blue Angel and Stanley Kubrick's Fear and Desire. Have you picked these up yet? Um, I have picked both of them up because um, Masters of Cinema, they've started the new development where you can pre-order their upcoming releases together and you get a DVD for free. Right. And uh, that has definitely been an incentive for me to just uh, start pre-ordering all these uh, wonderful releases. But I picked both of them up. I haven't watched them yet. I have uh, watched The Day of the Fight by Stanley Kubrick a long, long time ago. And uh, that is a pretty good documentary about a boxer getting ready for a fight. Um, But I can't really talk about the uh, quality of the two main films themselves but they look definitely interesting yeah yeah i mean i've i've, I've picked them both up. i haven't watched haven't watched them yet but i mean the fear and desire one's quite an interesting one because that isn't a particularly i have seen it before it's not a particularly great film and i always feel a little bit um like and you know, stanley kubrick did not want that film released and <laughs> i i do i think you know we wanted it released obviously for completists because now it's not you know i've got all of uh, the kubrick films on blu-ray now and that's quite a nice you know to have them all but i i do feel slightly um that i'm desecrating or kind of certainly going against the wishes of sir stanley on that one but but how would you feel if uh, like star wars or thx if those theatrical releases would come out once again did you would you buy them and feel the same way or uh, no, I'd, I'd buy them. I'd snap. I'd, I'd get them instantly. And I, I, I said it's easy to um, having now. I own fear and desire. It's easy to kind of go. Oh, you know, would Stanley like this? I'm a complete hypocrite. I, I, as soon as I saw it come out on pre-order, I'd click buy you know, within <laughs> like three seconds. I didn't even. I didn't even stop and consider the fact that obviously you know this is you know you didn't want it coming out. But you know, in a way, I think sometimes um, I wish it's like Michael Mann and the Keep. You know, I think in a way it's all very well and good him saying, you know, I don't ever want to, I don't want this film to kind of go out in the public domain. But I think sometimes they should kind of get over themselves a little bit and kind of uh, give their fans what they want. Because again, if the, I don't even think it keeps that great a film, but if it came out tomorrow, I'd, I'd buy it. I'd buy it instantly just to complete yeah. my Michael Mann collection. Just a quick point though, Joachim. I mean, I obviously 
because I live in Britain, I get and I get them from Amazon. I get these, you know, these releases the day they come out. Normally, the day they come out. But how long does it take if you buy them off Master Cinema? How long does it take to get? Because you're in Norway, how long does it take you to get take them to get there? Um, I'm not sure how long it takes before um, the actual street release date, but I usually get them before the street release date. So oh, really? um, because I I follow the Criterion forum. Um, and the Masters of Cinema thread over there. And usually when people post that they've uh, got the releases today and stuff, I already had my releases for a couple of days. So oh, right. It's, so it's... Uh, quite fast ordering from the um, the native office page of the Eureka video yeah, yeah. homepage. I mean, I, I've had it a couple of times where my uh, Criterion imports have been busted at customs and there was, there was nothing more annoying than when that happens. Because obviously you, know, you have to pay a great deal, but it's still it still angers me but i mean well i mean because you can't buy directly from criterion's website if you live abroad can you you have to sort of go through kind of third parties like amazon so master cinema they are perfectly okay with exporting abroad are they yeah you can Um, order from anywhere in the world and they just they label the value below a certain number so it won't be held up by customs it's uh, wonderful actually so yeah that's a nice touch and i mean because some of the discs as well i've noticed this as well some of them are region free aren't they the blu-ray some are some are some aren't and i think that's something um certainly when we kind of get the blog up and running we'll make people aware of that because um there is well i mean i've got software on my mac to kind of decrypt um uh foreign blu-rays um and just in case this is just a slight side if and i know i know you do it you play your blu-rays don't you through your mac it's my only uh, device actually at this right. time because my ps3 is uh gone kaput so no i, I was just going to tell people that if they do if they they do want to watch um blu-rays on mac there are ways to do it and you have to purchase um third-party software i made the mistake this is just like a public service announcement i suppose <laughs> I, I made the mistake of buying um something called um media player by a company called dvd fab who normally produce um kind of like copying software and things like that and this player was billed as being everything you know it could uh, full menus everything like that you know hd sound you can export it is the most fucking useless thing i have ever purchased in my entire life if anyone um if you go to their Facebook page, you will see my rather sarcastic posts that I've made to them. Um, because no matter what you put, if you put literally something like um, your mum's a whore, they would put a reply back saying, many thanks. We will look into it. Thank you for your patience. They just do not. They do. They do not do anything. It's the worst piece of shit I've ever purchased, and I'm actually getting enraged just talking about it. So I'm going to calm down. <laughs> but just, well, what, just uh, what, uh, what software do you use to watch movies now on your Mac? Oh, I, I, no, I, I still use DVD Fab. However, I don't have anywhere near the functionality that I should have. It mm-hmm. Basically, you can't export HD sound. It can only it downgrades it to, um, I think, either DTS or PCM or something like that. And that, that, that's, that might sound minor, but I am a, a bit pathetic when it comes to things like that. And it, it does annoy me a little bit because, you know, one of the best things about these releases, I, I found the best one of the best things about Blu-ray is sound, um, the, the improvement in sound. And I want, if I buy a... a you know, Criterion, like Pina has just come through um, the post, you know, from, from Criterion. And I want to watch that film with DTS HD sound. I don't want it in DTS. Yeah, that's what I purchased this bloody software for. And you can get it to work, but it's just got so many bugs that if you do try and listen to the HD sound, it just basically starts skipping and crashes and all that. And it's like a lottery, really. It's like, it's, it's, I don't know, it's like it's, the way it works is set to shuffle. You have to kind of press so many different buttons to kind of find the right combination to actually get it to work. The fact that I paid 40 quid for it, I just, I'm just loathed to buy something else. What, what, you use Mac Blu-ray player, don't you? 
Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it. Uh, I'm not sure about the um, if it uh, downgrades the audio because I only have a 3.1 setup uh, at this moment, but uh, I'm very pleased with it. The only thing that I don't like is that the native uh, menus are not there, so they use a custom menu. Oh, yeah, uh, well... I mean, that's the great thing about DVD fab, apparently. You can watch it with full menus. So if you do try and watch it with the menu, all you get is the kind of the title screen, the name yeah. of the film, and then it just crashes immediately afterwards. And yeah, like I said, the customer support is just absolutely pathetic. So, but the benefit it does, it does remove the kind of the copy protection on it. So you can, you, you can actually watch foreign, you know, different region Blu-rays, but it's just uh, obviously a bit of a pain in the ass and I can't recommend it. But okay, so coming up um, releases, what have we got there? Uh, we have got uh, La Poisson by Sacha Guthrie, uh, a 1951 film that will be release number 48. And it's an 85-minute uh, black-and-white film uh, by Sacha Guthrie. I've never heard of this one, but I've heard of the Michel Simon, which is the uh, actor that portrays uh, Paul Braconnier in the film. He's just a great character actor that I remember distinctly from La Talente and Boudou Save from Drowning. Yeah, I, I've, 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 I have seen the film before and I'm certainly looking forward to it. I've just got a quick interjection here. Um, one thing I have spoken about before on the 24 Frames cast is my pronunciation of foreign names is horrendous. I'm a typical Brit in that respect. I just kind of... And I, I don't bother learning foreign languages. I just try and kind of basically, um, I suppose, kind of... Uh, ignorant my way through it so Joachim when it comes to pronouncing foreign names you're going to be the man I'm afraid because um, you are way better than I am uh, what else have we got after that uh, we have a Fellini film spine number 53 which is uh, La Cita della Donna it was released in 1980 and it is the start of uh, a later period in uh, Fellini's work we have the uh, wonderful Marcello Mastroianni, who is uh, reappearing in a Fellini film. He's always wonderful to look at, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. And I'm not, again, I've seen, I have seen this one before, and uh, it's it, I, Fellini's films are ones which um, I, sometimes when you can you talk to people about kind of sort of um, reasons why they don't watch kind of like foreign films is they kind of quote people like Fellini as being one of the reasons why they don't because they find them so kind of obscure. And I, I personally really enjoy his work, and I, 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 I find his films very funny actually a lot of the time. And this is certainly one of the better ones. And what else have we got coming out after that? Um, the latest uh, upcoming release, which is available for pre-order, is uh, Kanate Shindo's Onibaba from 1964, which looks really enticing when I see the pictures from the slideshow on Masters of Cinema page go through it. It looks really great in black and white, high contrast. Yeah. And um, I haven't seen this one. Uh, I've seen the Kuroneko, the other Shindo film, which is available on uh, Eureka Masters of Cinema, on DVD, that is. Um, but this one looks really great. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait for this one. No, it is a great film. It's another one I ha I've seen as well. And um, the other one as well, I think coming out this has got an introduction with Alex Cox. And he's someone who, I think, like Master Cinema and Criterion, they have sort of like certain people and directors whose kind of films that they show a lot. And Alex Cox does crop up a few times on Masters of Cinema releases. And he's, a, I, I, well, I can certainly we'll get to Repo Man one day as well, which is another one. But And we've got some pre-orders as well. One which is particularly, I mean, I love Antonioni films and um, I'll let you pronounce it, number 47. La Notte, That's from 1961. One. Yeah. Uh, it says on their page that it's one of the masterworks. Um, I have not seen that many Antonioni films. And um, 
slight detour on this one because um, that is one of the reasons I wanted to start this Master Cinema cast because many of these films I know their names and I know the films and I've heard about them but I've never actually sat down to watch them so that is really one of the impetus for starting this uh, podcast yeah no definitely I mean it Antonio was I watched uh, La Ventura um, must have been about three years ago now and um, before that I had seen I, I'd seen another one of his films I can't remember which one it was but he was one of those directors who uh, you'd heard so much about and I I, I, I I don't know why I didn't bother checking them out earlier but uh, after watching um, La Ventura I just devoured his films and I would say now you know he's one of my favorite directors and that is a release I'm certainly looking forward to number 57 though which is one of the pre-orders which I cannot wait for is Henri George Clouseau's The Murderer Lives at 21 he is another filmmaker who I mean I have I I, I watched The Wages of Fear when I was about 16 I think and his films he's an outstanding filmmaker and I'm so glad that this one is coming to the master cinema because he hasn't. He's one of these directors. Some of his stuff is quite hard to get hold of, and certainly, I mean, there's. Um, I think it's Arrow Films have put out um, *Les Diaboliques*, which is one of the best thrillers I've ever seen. It kind of certainly gives Hitchcock a run for its money. But I've never seen this film, and I cannot wait to see it. Are you kind of familiar at all with his work? I have seen the *Les Diaboliques* uh, release from Criterion, which is, as you said, pretty. Decent thriller, yeah. It gives Hitchcock a run for his money, as he said. But I've also recently watched the Quad de Orfevre, I think it's called, um, which is an out of print uh, Criterion release, um, which is also a very good, although a minor release from um, from Clouseau. But he's definitely one of those filmmakers that I've discovered through the Criterion collection. Yeah, and just as a, a, a quick addition as well, there is a, a it's a documentary um, made about a film which he was trying to make, which he never finished with, and it's called Henri George Clouseau's Inferno. And this is, and it, they take footage that he actually filmed, and they kind of intertwine it with a documentary about the making of the film, and also kind of reenactments scenes from the film. It is one of the best films about filmmaking I have ever seen, and uh, you know, I think sort of everyone sort of. The, the the poster boy film for kind of making of is Hearts of Darkness. I actually, I think this gives it a, a run for its money because it, it's a film where, you know, like a lot of his other works, he had kind of complete control over the budget and the kind of everything really that he normally had. And for some reason on this case, on, on this film, sorry, it didn't kind of work as well as it should have. And I think it was a classic case of one of those directors who kind of lost themselves in what they were doing and was just spending horrific amounts of money for kind of not much return. And the, the sad thing is when you see clips from, from Inferno that he had shot, the film looks absolutely incredible. It's such a shame that it, it was never completed. But this documentary is, a, I suppose, as good as it will ever get. And it's an incredible film. It's one of my favourite documentaries ever made. And I think you can actually pick it up in America on Blu-ray. And I can certainly recommend doing that. They had it. It was, it was here. I actually saw it on cable here. Um, I don't know if you can pick it up on DVD in Europe. But certainly, um, you can. I know for a fact you can get it in America. And I can definitely recommend checking that one out. OK, what have we got coming out after that as well? After that, it is by number 58 and 59, which is a dual release by uh, director Claude Chabrol. Uh, we have Le Beau Serge, um, which is a film that has also... Oh, both films have also been released on Criterion, with the other one yeah. being Le Cousin. Um, yeah. I've seen both of these films. They are very, very good. Uh, especially uh, Le Cousin was one that I found uh, very moving with the 
heartbreaking ending to say the least yeah yeah definitely i mean uh, they're two i mean eight, yeah i've already got the criterions and those but i mean yeah definitely two that i've particularly enjoyed and what about spine number 60 what have we got there Spine number 60 is a film I have never, ever heard about before. Nope, <laughs> same as. Bakumatsu Tayoden by Yuzo Kawashima. Um, but it's, it has been voted as one of the top five Japanese films ever made uh, by Japanese uh, uh, critics. Um, so I imagine it would be quite good, but they have no, um, no stills from the film up yeah. on their page, so I don't know what it looks like yet. But um, of course, it is, if it is one of the top five voted, I've, uh, I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Yeah, again, I've, I've never heard or seen this film before, so that would be one which I'm quite looking forward to. Slightly interesting as well, um, this, I suppose it's probably worth mentioning now, there are kind of two spine numbers at Play of Master Cinema. There was the original DVD spine numbers and then the blu-ray spine numbers we are going to be covering both because the next release which is um spine number 122 that's a dvd only release um i'll let you do the pronunciations again on this one well the final dvd is dvd spine number 122 the complete and existing films of sadao yamanaka he made 22 films uh in his career but uh they have only been able to obtain three of them for this release so um but we were speaking about the dvd and the blu-ray we will be our main focus will probably be the blu-ray and the dvd will be a supplement when we yeah when we feel like this film needs to be covered because from what i remember they were actually they actually they actually cut out the dvd release for a uh, moment before the uh, fire wasn't it yeah, well, I mean, it's quite strange because I mean, there has been a few um, releases uh, re- that have just come out, and they've just been out on DVD. There was um, some, uh, I think it was Pigsty. It was the Pasolini film that came mm. out um, last year, and as I understand, it's when they can't get the elements, um, basically can't get the, the decent enough elements to warrant the um, HD upgrade. Because one, one of my favourite. Um, westerns actually is the john ford film the iron horse and that's a dvd only release and um apparently it was because you know they, they, they didn't feel it was worth doing the uh, the blu-ray upgrade for so you know they are still going to be kind of obviously championing the um the dvd format there's a very good as well uh, i don't know if you've read it on their website kind of an impassioned plea as to why we should be buying um blu-ray over dvd and it kind of uh, kind of lays out their um kind of feelings on the subject there which definitely worth kind of checking out but one thing that is quite interesting is that they have uh, returned to form so to speak by including uh, lots of documentaries and audio commentaries and video introductions because there was a period in the um, latest six months of last year where many of their releases were just bare bones releases but uh, I'm quite pleased that they have uh, decided to include more of these extra materials in their films now yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I'm not quite sure why that was. I mean, it might have been because of the fire. And, uh, you know, if people don't know, and uh, Master Cinema and Eureka had their distribution and was at a Sony distribution centre in London. And um, it, it's basically, I, I didn't know this, but this distribution centre is really responsible for kind of um, most supplying most um, shops in Britain. And during the riots in where we learnt that um, there is an underclass of moron in England, they decided to burn down the uh, distribution centre. And with uh, with it went um, everything Eureka Master Cinema had. Now, luckily enough, they were insured, um, their stock was insured, but there were other distributors who weren't, who lost everything in that. And um, thankfully, I think the government actually... Um, 
uh, intervened and paid people but you know f- for some people it was you know it took, take them a little while to get back to go i was actually quite i was, I was a little bit worried when that happened actually because i thought um they would uh stop uh releasing some of the 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 older stuff you know I, only because i thought you know people who hadn't had the chance to buy some of the releases but what i think they actually used that for was a chance to go back through the back catalog and make these blu-ray upgrades and certainly i think so in a way i think we are going to be getting more kind of spine numbers that have already been released on dvd and getting this um, hd upgrade which i don't think is a bad thing in the end and there's certainly some films in there which i can't wait for the uh, the blu-ray especially um, rocco and his brothers which was spine number 48 by visconti that is a classic film and I, I, can't, I really really cannot wait for that to come out on blu-ray if they are going to go down that down that route and shower as well is another one which they've released which was spy number 38 i'd very much like to see a, a hd upgrade of that one but uh anything else you want to add on that kind of department um we have now fulfilled or they have um released or announced every spine number up until spine number 60 for the blu-ray except spine number 52 54 and 56 so we will probably see that one in the next announcement because they usually don't leave their spine numbers open no. so um but uh, which ones uh, which films will be in the next release i'm not sure maybe kaneta shindo's kuroneko because that one is already in the eureka dvd release uh, department yeah. and um, criterion house already released that in uh, blue so i think that a blue grade of kuroneko could yeah. probably be uh, within uh, the grasp yeah no, and like anyway, I think it's uh, always best. They're quite active on Twitter, aren't they, Masters Cinemas? I've had a few replies to them and things like that. So I think they are kind of. Um, you know, uh, that's certainly the best place to uh, check out what their releases. Okay, so with that all aside, we're going to get on to the first release of this episode, and we're going to be taking a look at Peter Watkins' nineteen seventy one film, Punishment Park. Now, this is has already been released on um, DVD. It was spine number twenty one on the original run, and it's now spine number twenty nine on the Blu ray one. Under the provisions of Title Two of the 1950 Internal Security Act, also known as the McCarran Act. The President of the United States of America is still authorized, without further approval by Congress, to determine an event of insurrection within the United States and to declare the existence of an internal security emergency. The President is then authorized to apprehend and detain each person as to whom there is reasonable ground to believe probably will engage in certain future acts of sabotage. Punishment Park, Joachim, what, what is this one actually all about? It's about um, two different groups, um, which are 
brought before a uh, tribunal of sorts, a uh, provisory tribunal, I would say, uh, which is um, run by the government, where they are uh, trying them for um, rising up against the government, basically. Now, you can uh, you can see the similarities between the hippie movement and this is sort of taken to the nth extreme where they are trying people for being basically unpatriotic and we are seeing we are seeing them either condemned to basically 20 years plus in prison or going through something called punishment park with it which is a three-day journey in the desert until they reach a american flag yeah and basically whilst you're kind of making your way through the desert you are pursued by the authorities in the kind of the form of the police and the army and before i suppose we kind of really tuck into the meat and bones of the film i think it's kind of just a little bit might be worth just going back a little bit and quickly talking about kind of the first kind of interaction you had with kind of peter watkins films because i mean he was a director i mean when i went to university i was very much raised on a diet of Steven Spielberg, James Cameron and David Lean. They were the kind of people I was into. And one of the things I, I, I did, I did pure film studies at university. And when on the first um, kind of semester, as it were, we did a documentary course and Peter Watkins was one of those. And it, one of the first films I saw of his was Culloden. And so the debate I will get into a little bit longer, but I, I, I didn't really kind of, I don't, personally kind of see see Clodden as a documentary of sorts in the kind of the most the traditionalist sense but he's a director who uses kind of documentary aesthetics in kind of fictional settings sometimes he uses them to sort of tell um historical tales but other times like in Punishment Park he's kind of using this aesthetic in a uh, fictional setting and I remember thinking oh my god yeah this was a director who after that I was kind of pretty much hooked on what he did and in fact the very first kind of episode of the 24 frames cast I I did um, one of his other films the war game which is one of the scariest films you will ever see and I I sort of sincerely believe Watkins is one of the probably one of the most interesting directors who I've ever discovered whose films aren't kind of widely available he isn't a, a celebrated director he's only really made one kind of major studio film which was Privilege which we might talk about in a bit but what what was your kind of early um kind of interactions with uh, Peter Watkins and what were your kind of thoughts on him I remember listening to your podcast actually on the war games and um I think uh, about a year later there were we're on the same forum on the um, Andy versus Hollywood forum, and um, they started up a thread on War Games, and I decided to watch that one. And um, that, to today's date, is still my favorite War Games film, where I think that epitomizes his yeah. filmography and everything that he stands for. But yeah, definitely. After seeing War Games, I started watching all of his other Gladiators, Privilege, Edward Monk, and uh, Punishment Park. And um, my introduction was, or my first impressions of him was that uh, I'm not usually a fan of this sort of um, fictionalised documentary aspect of it, uh, but I found that it was uh, innate in his uh, type of storytelling. You couldn't do this without that type of uh, filmmaking. It is such an integral part of what he's trying to tell and everything that he's trying to talk about, that you couldn't do this as a fictionalised account. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things about Peter Watkins is that this is someone, I mean, if you the more you kind of read about him, this is someone who 
really i i think there's a very good reason why he hasn't kind of had like a mainstream hollywood career is because he is i i think he kind of despises that type of thing i mean i mean it's one of the things i i found i'm just preparing an episode at the moment for my best films of 2012 and i was looking at them and one of the things that a lot of them have in common is how stripped down they are because i think i've in recent years i've become quite sick of the kind of the hollywood aesthetic you know this kind of obsession with visual perfection and you know, the, the, the artifice of it really i think has kind of got to me in recent years and peter watkin is a director who just strips everything out of film that we normally kind of consider to be kind of cinematic and part of what you know what most of you if you go, if you go to the multiplex now it's you know invariably it is just american films big american films and he is the polar opposite of all that he doesn't use professional actors and um, you know especially in kind of films like the war game and culloden he actually got the kind of the although they're kind of period pieces especially culloden he had like the um the actors uh and the, the people in these films mostly non-professional as well do things like stare into the camera which is you, you just don't do that in you know fictional filmmaking it's just not something you know it, it draws attention to the artifice of what you're doing but he, Watkins doesn't seem to have that any kind of interest he you know the the barrier between the filmmakers and what he's actually filming isn't there and it's something i know we'll talk about in punishment park um certainly perhaps to its detriment i think in a little in a bit but certainly as he's, when you're watching his films there's no attempt to i think kind of gloss them up or hide the fact that um you're meant to look at these i suppose in a strange way the, the actual kind of the, the the style draws attention to itself in the fact that it's actually part of what you are watching as opposed to being this kind of invisible presence you know they, he, he does interact with you know he does get people to interact with the camera all the time he sort of and it's strange because I find I, I don't know what to kind of label this type of filmmaking. I've heard it called docudrama before, um, and I suppose that's kind of one word you can call it. it the, one of the best examples, perhaps, is something like District Nine, which for the first half of that film, it has that kind of documentary aspect, and then it suddenly kind of throws itself off and becomes like a more like a traditional film. And I'm a bit like you. I, I sometimes I'm not quite sure if I like it or not. I it, it does. I think lots of filmmakers want to have their cake and eat it with it. And certainly it's something I, that's something I'll get back to with, with Punishment Park. But I certainly think he's a very interesting filmmaker. And um, like it's a shame, really, that he doesn't have more. You know, he hasn't made more films and he has. I mean, prior to watching this, I watched them. Um, have you seen you've seen Gladiators, haven't you? I have, yeah. yeah, I mean that was one film which I really did not enjoy at all, to be brutally honest with you. And um, you know, he's he's kind of big. His, his biggest film was Privilege, which I think. Um, that's that's another interesting one, especially in the age of things like you know, like the X Factor and god awful abominations like that, and how we kind of turn um, celebrities into some you know we try and turn them into greater things than they are. It's certainly a very interesting film, but it was that was that, his good. So that's something that is very interesting about Watkins is that he made most of his films in late 60s early mm. 70s but they're very resonant in the day we live in. Today. Oh god, yeah, and I mean I think that is a you know to to be able to do that. Because it's not often you watch a film um, and you think, God, you know, you could really just apply this. And it, it, it's quite depressing in a way. I think it's, again, I, I know oh, yeah. I keep saying, I, I know I keep saying, you know, we're going to get, we'll talk about it in a minute. But I, I, certainly, I certainly think, you know, with Punishment Park, there's a lot of things that we kind of kind of relate it to in modern times. But what were your kind of first impressions of Punishment Park? Um, Grueling, I would say, was the word that was going through my mind. Most yeah. of the film anyways. Um it takes um i'm studying psychology now and i always i found it very fascinating the way they treat the 
abnormality in society yeah. and the way we we always try to isolate what we don't like and yeah. uh, you can basically think of this as abnormality that they want to lock up because throughout history we have um, like people who believed in witchcraft and people who were um, possessed and stuff like that we always wanted to put them through uh, grueling exercises or torture them or make their bodies an inhabitable place to be for the demons and this is this was one of the ways we used to cure patients by putting them through uh, physical or mental suffering uh, so that the mental illness would uh, depart from their bodies and I think that that sort of thinking was something that I first thought of when I watched Punishment Park where they are trying to basically trying to beat them into submission uh, and try uh, trying to get them to conform to society and i mean yeah only it's when i when i was watching i mean like you say this is not an easy film to watch at all and i think it's worth just giving a little bit of you know how punishment came about how punishment park came about really because i think he was actually in america to make some um, films about the American Civil War in the same kind of they're meant to be educational films the same kind of way Culloden was and the deal fell through basically and I think at the time there was lots going on there was like things like the Kent State Massacre and various assassinations of you know political leaders and um, certainly imprisonment and arrest and trial of you know Black Panthers and things like that and Watkins decided to stay on in America to make a film which was kind of like expanded on what was going on kind of within American society and this kind of like, I suppose it's kind of like a, almost like a Franken, Punishment Park's like a Frankenstein kind of version of the various legislation that was in place at the time. And so there's something called the McCarran Act, which is an actual piece of legislation, which is part of the opening um, uh, monologue, which it sounds like something, it, basically it's when the president can essentially set up camps for subversives without the approval of Congress. It's like, it, I, I mean, I did check it out check it on the internet, and it, I mean, it's incredible. This this piece of legislation, it's something you know you'd expect in some kind of third world dictatorship. And when I was watching Punishment Park for the first time, I remember I, I saw it some years ago. In fact, it was one of the I, I did buy it and watch it almost immediately. And I remember thinking, Christ Almighty, you know, this was in like the late um, two thousand eight, sometime around then. I remember thinking, my God, this is this film. Um, is still completely relevant because at the time there was all this kind of thing about you know Guantanamo Bay and things like that and the kind of almost like Kafkaesque type system of justice in which you could be um, arrested in foreign countries for, for for crimes which you had no idea that you were that you'd actually kind of taken part in and certainly there was a there was a, there was a case of a British businessman who was on holiday I think he was in holiday in Morocco or something like that and literally was arrested taken to i think it was diego garcia in the indian ocean and then ended up in guantanamo bay um he hadn't done anything wrong he, he was just a case of i'm not sure if it was mistaken identity or it was just kind of malicious kind of um people trying to get one over him but this guy ended up going to prison for something he'd never done and you know he, he'd say he'd sit there in front of interrogators day after day saying you know, he hadn't done anything wrong and they were basically trying to get him to confess to things which were just ludicrous they had been parts of bombing campaigns in the Kashmir and things like this and it, it's just incredible and you, you, when you watch Punishment Park and you see this film it's obviously made in the 70s and you kind of apply it to then you just think oh my god you know these situations that these young people are going through you know they, they have been echoed in contemporary history and I think, whilst, like you say, it is an incredibly gruelling film to watch. I wouldn't say this is the most enjoyable film I've ever seen. Is that something you could kind of concur with? 
I think I could concur with that, yeah. <laughs> it is not a, a pleasing film. It's not something that you smile through and uh, you're happy when you yeah. when you diff- when you um, finish the film, but it is an enlightening film, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I was, I was thinking about, I, I did an episode, and I don't, I don't want to keep shamelessly um, uh, plugging 24 Frames cast, but I did an episode on Gimme Shelter about the Rolling Stones concert of Vermont, in which... Um, uh, a hell's angel ended up stabbing um, a member of the audience to death, and I remember saying in that that it was came at the end of the sixties when all these kind of idealisms and these radical political opinions were basically, um, I think you could sort of say they were for nothing really, because you know certainly America didn't change. In fact, it, I think it kind of, um, sorry, kind of foreign policy wise and kind of internally as well. I I I think it kind of got worse for a lot of people, especially when you obviously had kind of the soldiers returning from Vietnam and things like that, and. It was kind of the the end of this this fantasy movement, this naive dream state that uh, the murder of this uh, festival it sort of brought everything at an end, basically. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it was the kind of the death knell for it, and I think Punishment Park is very much a continuation of that. Because one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching it was, you know, what, what, what this kind of. Uh, America is taking place in. Do you think it's meant to be fictionalized, or do you think it's more of sort of saying like, well, we're not really far off that way, you know? Because I, I don't sort of see it as being this like. It, I, I think I said to you when we were building up to show. In a way, I sort of think this is a kind of science fiction. But having gone back to it again, I think what Watkins is saying a lot of in the film is this kind of thing is going on now, and this you know this McCarran Act is really a lot like Punishment Park. Do you think it's a sort of an alternate history of thing or do you think he's sort of saying, well, this is, you know, we're only we're only a few steps away from this as it is now? I think uh, he's actually saying both, really. It, it, is, it is not a current state of affairs, but it is one or two steps in the wrong direction and will be there type of thing. Because uh, if he wanted to, if he wanted to make it even more abstract, I think he would have brought in a lot more um, fictionalized elements into it, like props or something that yeah. would create this sort of uh, alternate, uh, more alternate reality, basically. Um, but the way it is now, it is such a realistic portrayal of a society that we could easily imagine. So, yeah. I guess I mean, this thing, one of the things when you're watching it, the, the, the idea of punishment in it, you have obviously the authority figures, which we see like police and army. And like you said, they don't have any kind of like, you know, science fiction guns on them. Certainly, I think Gladiators, the film before this, I think that was quite a science fiction-y type. Um, mm. I think, you know, he's gone in that direction before. Privilege as well is kind of, you know, it takes place. But I suppose it's kind of alternate realities or, you know, just sort of slightly skew with, you know, that's how he sort of kind of sets his worlds up. But in Punishment Park, you know, you don't have any sort of like conventional things that kind of push you towards thinking this is any kind of other genre other than, you know, I suppose a, a fake kind of documentary about the present. And I mean, one of the things, you know, just talking about kind of the, the role of authority in this, we have obviously the two groups. We have the ones that are being tried and then they're about to be sentenced to either jail or punishment park. In fact, you get the decision, don't you? You can either go and do your sentence or you can try punishment park. And uh, what I don't quite made, don't think is made quite clear is wh- who wouldn't pick punishment park? 
because it's not made clear that you're going to die, is it, really? I mean, I think that obviously no. that does happen. But I mean, this is one thing when I was watching, I sort of thought, well, why if they said, well, you're 30 years, why wouldn't you think, oh, fuck it, I'll just have a try at Punishment Park. You know, what's the worst that can happen? You know, <laughs> if you get to the flag, apparently you might get set free. You know, if you get caught, you're just going to go and serve your sentence. So I don't think it made it quite so, so quite clear, really, what the kind of the, the, the dangers of uh, doing Punishment Park were, other than the fact, obviously, and we'll talk about this in the voiceover, that it's incredibly hot, but... When I was watching it, I mean, obviously Watkins cast um, non-professional actors and he went for kind of like younger people, didn't he, for the people running around punishment parts, the people who've been sentenced. And basically, you know, what they're saying is completely off the cuff. And you notice that, especially during the trial scenes, the people in the tent are kind of, um, they're either kind of quite preppy academic types or they're kind of an older um, from an older generation. But I, I think kind of generation-wise, I'd say more, more like kind of age that there would be these kind of people's mothers and fathers and i think one of the things that we've read certainly a lot about in terms of the kind of the critical reaction to the film is that it's kind of a revenge fantasy and i thought that's something you could kind of expand a little bit on in terms of the fact that this film well certainly to me it feels like a kind of a uh like the elders teaching the young the youngsters something about respect and um Oh Christ, patriotism. Yeah, it's definitely trying to take uh, to show the right or the right uh, political side as they are being morally superior, and he and the way he shoots it, it seems like he's always showing the oppression through symbols, not necessarily telling us in a verbal language that this side is right, this side is wrong but he's showing it through the symbolic of showing them um, with... uh, You can see uh, often when he frames the uh, oppressed people, he usually has a a gun in the frame or a handcuff or a uh, billy club or something, always showing that suppression um, together with the oppressed people. Uh, I think that was uh, what I was getting at with the revenge fantasy, is that you, you can always tell that um they are never getting out this alive basically yeah um yeah i mean it's something which i mean you know we talk about the kind of the film's relevancy today and it it it, it reminded me of an incident that happened during the um the london riots well the world the countryside the countrywide riots sorry that we had um a couple of summers ago there were two lads who put up a um a posting on Facebook, basically trying to incite a riot, and absolutely nothing happened. There was no riot. There was no, you know, there was no mass gathering. And these two lads were sentenced to four years in prison. And it was strange because one of the, I think, the things about the riots was that they made the kind of the right in England. It was suddenly justified everything they had been saying for years that you know. Um, divorce basically if your parents get divorced that instantly means suddenly any sense of moral positioning you have goes out the window and you become basically an urchin who marauds through the streets smashing windows and what happened during that was it kind of i think it for a lot of people it kind of justified that point of view and these two lads got sentenced to four years and i remember reading on that we have like papers in britain like the daily mail and the express and they're they're just for for right-wing middle-class idiots um unfortunately and um I, i include my parents in that and the type of thing that they would read and say, oh, well, yeah, that, that's, you know, that, 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 that's exactly what it was. And these two lads who went down, the, the 
posts on the article at the end were like, yeah, they should rot in prison. You know, that's it. They've done this wrong. You know, how dare they? This is, you know, this will teach them some lessons, blah, blah, blah. They should be made to join the army. And then it's not my kind of like wishy-washy liberal kind of sensibilities, but I suddenly thought to myself, well, they've actually done nothing wrong. They haven't, you know, they've not actually committed a crime. No one has been injured as a result of this thing on Facebook. They've just been sentenced for four years for a, putting up something that was slightly stupid. And likewise, we had an incident um, last year in which a guy who was trying to fly from Nottingham Airport, um, they, I think they kept delaying his flights, and he put on Twitter something like, I'm going to bomb this place soon if they don't sort it out. And he actually got arrested and convicted on terrorism charges. And it's just like, you know, Christ. And again, a lot of people were sort of saying, well, he shouldn't have put something so stupid. But it's like, you know, in a way, we've all said and done stupid things in the past. And we've, you know, how many times you said, oh, yeah, I could murder that person or something. You don't mean it, literally. But this is the type of thing, you know. And one of the things when I was watching Punishment Park, again, in preparation for this show, I just thought, my God, you know, we are sort of, there are, there is this sort of right wing hatred, I think, of kind of, I suppose it's like radical thinking and kind of, you know, if you, especially in America, in terms of kind of patriotism, where I think one of the things I find about American culture is like the more kind of blindly you believe in America, the more patriotic you are. And I think Punishment Park is, you know, a younger generation who are kind of questioning things like, you know, why are we fighting in the Vietnam War? Well, you know, to even think that in Punishment Park is a convictable crime when, of course, as we know, it's just free speech. I think that was uh, what I was getting at uh, with the revenge fantasy and note that it seems like Peter Watkins is attempting to he's attempting to portray this um, sort of sentiment but he's showing us everything that is wrong with that sort of sentiment as yeah. well because he's showing all these people who are blindly patriotic uh, but he's also showing us that this can never lead to anything good basically this yeah. blind patriotism um i don't know if you've ever seen it but it was um an interview that i, I are you familiar with fox news at all or uh, a bit not really yeah well one of my favorite well I, I say favorites but I, I i i watch fox news just because it amuses me so much because it's so stupid but there's a one of the anchormen on that is a guy called bill o'reilly and there's a brilliant interview that he did with a um a lad who i think his parents were killed on september 11th or i think it might have just been his father was killed on september 11th and this lad was daring to suggest that perhaps going around bombing other countries wasn't the solution to solving terrorism and it's eerie how much the scenes in Punishment Park echo that interview and perhaps I'll actually um, prepare a clip or something for it because Bill O'Reilly basically just shits on him and starts shouting at him. Because you, that's it, I'm not going to say anymore. Okay. In respect for your father, September as a 14th, porter, do you want to know what I was up. doing? Shut up. Oh, please as don't respect, tell me as respect, in, in respect for your father, who was a Port Authority worker, a fine American who got killed unnecessarily by barbarians. By radical extremists yeah. Fine. trained by right. this government. Respect not for the him. people of America, I'm not the gonna people, the ruling you. class, the small minority. Cut his mic. I'm not going to dress you down anymore. Out of respect for your father. We'll be back in a moment with okay. more of the that was, We're done? We're done. Just for daring to have an idea which goes against this kind of knee-jerk kind of, you know, let's all bomb the shit out of people because they've done wrong. You know, that, that to not think like that is unpatriotic. When I would perhaps contest that, you know, kind of discourse in that by actually kind of like suggesting, you know, fact, things like torture and things like that, you know, perhaps saying, you know, well, perhaps torture isn't the best way that we should conduct ourselves. That's not being unpatriotic. I actually think that's a form of patriotism to kind of question the kind of the 
ethics of what your country's doing. And I think that's something which is kind of, you know, because these are the heroes in the film, aren't they? These young people who have kind of, you know, we, we are, you know, they've been involved in civil disobedience. In particular, the one that kind of grabbed me was the singer. That was quite an interesting one because I think there were kind of echoes of people like kind of like Bob Dylan and people like that in her. I mean, were there any that kind of like stood out for you as well? I think the I can't remember her name, but the uh, the brunette woman who we see make an impassioned speech at the end. Yeah, uh, that was one that uh, I really resonated with. The I think she's a political activist, or more yeah, yeah. so than the others. Um, her and the uh, the um, Black Panther man was also one that yeah. I could definitely. I read about uh, a lot of Black History books, and uh, I think that. He's raising a lot of interesting questions that are irreconcilable with uh, the views of the majority, basically. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, this is yeah, one thing about, I mean, when I was sort of talking, I, I think we've both made note of it. But in a way, I think Peter Watkins, um, he, he reminds me a little bit of Michael Moore in extent. I think he's very overtly, has a, a well, a very overt political bias. And... I'm reading a book at the moment and it's it's written by an American who's living in Europe and he's talking about the it's, it's the book's called Why, Whilst You're at Slept and it's he's talking about the kind of the way in which um Europe views America and in a way it's we we like to sort of think in a lot of ways I think you know especially kind of the media we like to think in many respects we're better than America um but then you sort of look at things like the fact that most of our culture is American, you know, in terms of what we consume, television, film, etc. And what the big issue that he makes in this book is the fact that we kind of feel like we can kind of make political judgments about America. And I've, I've obviously just been kind of guilty of it myself then. But, you know, are we really in a in a position to do that? And in, a, in, in one respect, when I saw a lot of P, Peter Watkins, I almost kind of think in a way it's quite arrogant of him to troop out there, make this film, say, look how bad you are. You know, do you, do you think it's... I mean, I, I hate to use this word, but do you think it's slightly pretentious, this film? Um, I do, actually. Uh, that is one of the, um, the points of the film where I am taken away from it. But, or I'm I'm pulled back and, like, his... Uh, there, was a, there was a review in the Evening Standard that basically yeah. sums up what I think of the film. It says that... Punishment Park is an angry allegory whose passion is too hot for its own good. Directed by Peter Watkins, a man of great talent who is exhausting himself by continually imagining there exists a media mafia which is out to spite him and suppress his films. It exemplifies how the artist's own sense of persecution sometimes rubs off fatally on his subject. The film ends with the voice of the camera director screaming shrilly, You wait till you see yourselves on television. It's too like the petulance of a small boy who screams out, you wait till I put my big brother on you. And I feel that that is basically the sentiment where I, uh, I'm feeling like he's pointing his finger saying, you just wait, you're not good enough for, we know better than you, basically. Yeah, and it is something, I mean, like I said, I, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, I do consume a lot of kind of American culture you know I, I'm, I'm fascinated with the country so you know it, it is one of these things where you kind of don't, we do talk about like um, you know, the American election I always find infinitely more interesting than the elections here I think it's actually means a lot more as well than the elections that we have here but you know sometimes I do sort of think to myself like who, who the fuck am I to have an opinion on another country to this extent and I think Peter Watkins is a filmmaker 
um, I, I, I know what you mean about this because you read a lot of his material and go on his website and things like that. And there is this sense, I think, sometimes where he is this kind of like, oh, you know, look at me, the outcast. And then you sort of think to yourself, well, he's not exactly played the system, has he? You know, he, he makes films which are deliberately provocative that are, you know, very much kind of harsh critiques of other cultures and kind of the way in which the world works. And when you kind of like that, although I think it's kind of good to have people like that, they do find themselves kind of pushed aside. And I think kind of the Michael Moore comparison, you know, Michael Moore, his films, you know, they were incredibly popular. And uh, of all the, all the things that kind of annoy me about kind of when people talk about Michael Moore's films, I always say, oh, you know, he's bending the truth, blah, blah. There are things in his films which are simple facts, like, you know, the beginning of Sicko, where that guy is having to decide what fingers to have to sewn back on because of the cost and stuff like that. There's no, there's, the politics of that scene, there are it's wrong. What what's going on in that thing is wrong, and you have to sort of get over the fact, you know, where what kind of side of the political spectrum you sit on. But with Peter Watkins, some of the things that he shows in this film, you know, it, it, you know, this kind of McCarran act, it is wrong. You know, there's no getting around that it's wrong. But I think unlike Michael Moore, he doesn't manage to kind of. Um, He's not as populist as someone like that, and I, I you know, probably doesn't have any intention of being that. But I think one of the byproducts of that is these films do feel incredibly preachy at times, and you know the way in which um, the the sort of the, the soldiers and the police are shown in the film, they're not kind of sympathetic. They're kind of sadistic, aren't they? Really, let's be honest. I mean, it's you know there's the, there's the one like younger soldier who just sort of looks kind of scared, but you know for the most part, this is the you know, they're just sadistic animals basically out to kind of injure and murder people. Yeah, uh, the blunt objects really. They're they're an extension of these of of the government really. But that scene with the uh, the young soldier that is a really heartbreaking scene actually. And you can see how they might have started out as that same kind of soldier who is insecure and who makes that first mistake. But you always have these elder these leaders in front of you who are comforting you and are ensuring you that you're doing the right thing and you can easily see the, how that boy will grow up to be like them. So. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, well, I, th- I think one of the things yeah, was the Malay massacre. That was one of the kind of the biggest kind of things that you know, mm-hmm. Watkins was talking about, you know, and I don't know how, you know, how much you know about that, but I mean, you know, this was the, the murder of 300 Vietnamese civilians and, you know, brutally so, and I, you know, one person went to prison for some pathetic uh, amount of time for that and, you know, it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, it was war, blah, 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 move on and Obviously, it's, it's things like that which you know you don't need to kind of be, you know, you always need to be as a citizen of the world to be disgusted about. You don't need to be American to be you know kind of disgusted at what you know has been done in your name, as it were. But you know, I, I think that that is one of the problems with these films is that I think the characters are, are very very hard to warm to in any respect, even the ones who are kind of you know even the even the ones who we're seeing being put in punishment part. You don't really kind of look at them. You don't think you, you're not exactly rooting for them, are you, during the film? They're basically they're symbols of they're yeah. symbols of movements. Basically, they're f- yeah. they're pretty flat characters, but we're not meant to. I don't think we're meant to uh, sympathise with any of them, or we're not meant to get closer under their skin. We're meant to deal with what he's trying to um, argue. Uh, yeah, he's, we're dealing with the arguments rather than the characters, really. Yeah, we're thinking about you know, the the wider issues at hand, yeah. which. 
in a way, you know, it, it, it's very worthy. And again, I hate using the word pretentious because I think it's such an overrated, well, such a misused word. But it does what it does kind of veer into that territory when you, you're watching a film. It's like I don't much like the films of Michael Haneke. I have to be honest. I, I, I feel like I'm being preached to a lot of the time, especially uh, funny games. You know, that, yeah. that's a film where it's like, you know, you're bad. You know, you you. It feels like I'm being told, you know, you 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 want murder and carnage to happen because you're sadistic, because you like horror films, and look how clever I am for making you aware of the fact that, you know, that you shouldn't you shouldn't like that. And I'm watching, I'm just like, do you know what? Fuck off. Do you know, get stop 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 impeding on my enjoyment of horror films and go away. And I think sometimes with Peter Watkins, that's how I feel like. But. That being said, I mean it, might, it sounds like we're kind of trashing this film because I'm not at all. I think no, it's an no, extra- no, no. I think I think it's an extraordinary film um, in many respects because you know this was made with a crew of about ten people I think in total. And one of the things I do want to talk about is that it's a brutally simple concept, isn't it? You get from A to B, you get to the American flag, you get set free, but it, it feels absolutely huge as a film. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of this this documentary style because i think you said that it it, it it certainly serves the material well but i do have a couple of kind of caveats that i want to talk about but and the first one being that and i think we need to kind of get out of the room is the presence of peter watkins himself in the film because i know it's something we alluded to earlier and i perhaps you wanted to expand on the kind of the fact that he does kind of overtake proceedings a little bit doesn't he yeah it it sort of uh, relates to what we've been talking about here about the sort of pretentious man who knows yeah. everything and yeah, yeah. who sort of tells everyone that this is right, this is wrong, and the the presence of him as a filmmaker and as a what is he a journalist? I think um, it sort of it just takes everything to another degree of that. Yeah, because this is the thing about the film is that it's alluded to at the start that there's a film crew here to record what's happening and this is where i find several film crews actually yeah 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 well this is this is where i find this kind of docu style thing kind of gets a bit strange because you think about the kind of things like the found footage genre you know it's this it's very convenient isn't it that someone's you know house is being possessed so they decide to film everything and then you you have these stupid captions at the end yeah they try and make it out like it's real and you know, it's just very convenient that the camera angles are set up perfectly, you know, blah de blah de blah And, you, yeah, you kind of go along with it and stuff like that. But there comes a point, and I talked about in District 9, where they, they for the first half, it's this documentary, and then in the second half, they go, right, fuck it, it's just a proper film now. And that doesn't bother me so much. But this this kind of does irritate me when they do it with like this, because on the one hand, they want to have the freedom of a normal fictional film. So you see, you see you know, shot reverse shots, but you don't see the camera crew in the shot reverse shots. You just see you know, how you would in a traditional fictional film. And instantly it's things like that. I start then sort of questioning the internal logic of the film. You know, what what is it? You know, am I meant to see this as the documentary that this documentary team made or am I meant to see it as a fictional film that Peter Watkins has made? Does that make sense in a way? Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. I never thought about it in those terms because, well, I do think, yeah, uh, I don't really recognise or... Uh, notice those sort of um, logical discrepancies uh, most mm-hmm. of the time, um, but uh, one of the things I've I um, reacted to was after the first two thirds of the movie when he gets really 
prevalent in the movie where yeah. he starts to step in yeah, and, and become more of a presence. That's when I started to react, yeah. Yeah, because you don't actually see him in the film, but you hear him and everyone suddenly starts swearing, don't they, at the end? I don't know if you've noticed, but like everyone's like, fuck this and fuck that. And Pete Watkins says things like, God damn, and British people don't sound right saying God damn. <laughs> you, I mean, it, it, and I'm sat there, I'm thinking, stop saying that for God's sake. You know, you, you don't sound right. And he's like, you know, when, 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 when you get, when you see yourself doing this, and I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. Again, I, I start to think about perhaps too much. What, the, what am I watching? You know, what is this? And what, is that entirely necessary for him to do that? And I, I found myself like you sort of coming out the film a little bit and just thinking about the kind of the artifice or the apparent artifice of it, because, you know, I'm not sure that was needed, to be brutally honest with you. I think it kind of, I, I felt he was kind of crossing a boundary, um, you know, from literally saying, well, from metaphorically wanting to say something to literally saying something. And I think, you know, it goes back to that whole kind of thing I was saying about this being a bit preachy and, you know, look how bad your culture is. Yeah, but it, I think the first two thirds of the film, he, he balances that line pretty well, but it's when he makes his arguments again and again and again in the final third and mm. where he literally states it that uh, look at what you're doing and wait till you see yourself on TV and yeah uh, you can definitely see that it, it gets to a point where he he goes over the top basically yeah mm. and I, th- I think you know although this film's an hour and a half when I'm watching it again, I I don't care how long a film is really, as long as I feel like you know the 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 sort of the the, the runtime justifies what's going on. I actually think this film's too long in some respects. I think he could have kind of still made the same film and the same points in you know he could have shaved half an hour off this, especially you know some of the scenes where we're seeing people getting tried, and you mm-hmm. know lots of them are just sort of sort of, sort of saying the same thing over and over again. But I mean, one of the other issues as well. I mean, he's, Peter Watkins is very good at, um, especially in films like the War Game. The use of voiceover is brilliant because it's quite scary. The kind of it's this kind of cold presentation of facts about you know, nuclear war and what will happen, and it it does make you listen. Now, I know this is something you kind of put in your notes as well, which is in this the the voiceover again feels a little bit redundant to an yeah. extent because he's talking about. I mean. He's saying that the desert is hot, the they need water or something like that, and they won't survive without water and stuff. And I'm just thinking that a normal human being would know these sorts of facts. Mm. And if they don't, how can they know the context of the whole situation in which Punishment Park is set? I mean, it, it's sort of basic human knowledge, and I don't think that this sort of commenting on the ordinary facts really brings anything to the film it just i mean i i know what he's trying to do i think he's trying to be this cold matter of fact commentator but um i'm not sure it really works but he i think he's trying to uh, another aspect of the film where he's, he's trying to critique the media and saying that even though you're in an investigative journalist you're really just standing there watching these people die. You're not really doing anything to help them. You're just showing the awful circumstances without really intervening in are you much better than anyone else, really. I think that is what he's trying to do. But, I mean, the certain 
not maybe all of the lines in the voiceover, but certain lines I just felt were really extraneous and yeah. Yeah, and again, it goes back to this kind of thing: is what, what, in what context is the voiceover? Is it the context of the voiceover of the film, or is it the voiceover for the film that's being made in the film? If you see what I mean, and that's the yeah. kind of thing that that's what I, 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 I struggle to kind of understand at what part I meant to sort of see this and how you know how I meant to kind of take it and understand it because that you, know, although I kind of you know, like again, I, I perhaps we sound a bit negative. I do think you know for people who were kind of raised on a diet of Hollywood, this film is will be like unlike anything I think a lot of people have ever seen before because, you know, it does have the, um, obviously, this documentary aesthetic. And with that, obviously, comes things like the framings off, the, the focus is, you know, constantly being kind of moved around. You know, it's not perfect. And in that sense, I think it quite masterfully replicates a documentary film. And... You know, one of the things you realise is that, you know, having now made a film myself, I know how you know, everything, everything, it's very hard to make something look as if it hasn't been planned. And I know that the fact that, you know, Watkins doesn't use scripts, he just kind of, let, let, you know, allows things on the fly. I think it's a kind of a, a really interesting way of making films and something that we don't see very often today. Um, but, but that was, that is one of the things that, we were talking about uh difference between Hollywood films and Watkins films because at one hand, yes, this is very, very different. But uh one of the things that is perhaps too different for me is that I can't get close to the characters, so he's keeping me at an mm. arm's length basically through the uh, the entire movie. I don't get really uh, emotionally invested in the film. And that's something I really appreciate in most American films basically is that I can get emotionally invested I can have feelings with the film in this film I feel like I'm I'm dealing with the issues as we talked about but I'm not dealing with any characters or any development for the characters any character arcs really it's just forcing me to think about the presence of the issue rather than the uh, the characters well, I mean, this is one thing, isn't it? I mean, it's like, even when you... It's not even so much American films, but even when you watch a normal documentary, so to speak. I mean, I watched The Imposter the other day. And, um, you know, even with documentaries, you too tend to get very invested with the characters, don't you? You don't... Yeah. You know, if, if, if the story is compelling and things like that, you know, you will you will get involved with them. You know, certainly things like, you know, um, what's that one about uh, King Kong? Is it Fistful of Dollars or whatever? Or Fistful of Quarters or something like that, you know? <laughs> that has you know classic protagonists in a way you know and you, you do get really into them but I, I that doesn't happen with these films either for me i don't i don't sit there and i, I like i said I, I just see these kind of archetypes really and when they, you you should be shocked when these kids are getting killed and things like that but I, I wasn't particularly i didn't feel any sort of emotional connection to what was going on on screen and i in a way i don't think that's a good thing in no. terms of yeah, you know, when you kind of get into a film, it's it's interesting. It's an in, it's very cold, um, kind of dislocated way of consuming a film in a way that we're not. I mean, you know, um, what was I watching the other day? Well, Zero Dark Thirty, for example. Um, you, you know, even that kind of the, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but the kind of the raid at the end. Even though I kind of knew what was going on and I knew kind of you know, obviously the history of it, I was still really worried for those guys who were going into that yeah. building to do the killing. And I thought, oh god, you know, even though I know the story, you know, I was still you thinking, don't know who survives? So yeah, yeah I, I was thinking, you know, god, you know, I, I, I really want these guys to get out. And you've only spent about fifteen minutes with them. With Punishment Park, it, it, it perhaps it's kind of the, you know, 
perhaps we are what Peter Watkins rails against. You know, we don't care perhaps as much as we should because I'm just watching these people get bumped off, just thinking, well, you know, okay, you know, just watch, just, just literally watching it, kind of detached from it, which perhaps is the point. I don't know. You know, and this is again, you know, it's it's. I suppose it, it kind of comes to this kind of preachy side of it all. You know, is the fact that we're kind of not that bothered by what we're seeing is that part of the problem that Watkins sees? I don't really know. You know, it's something which. I suppose his most personal film in terms of character was Privilege. Um, and even in that film, I didn't really care a great deal about the main character. I was more, uh, whilst I was watching Privilege, I was more more or less just thinking, God, this is just like the X Factor. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It, it, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, again, it comes, comes it's, perhaps this is one of the reasons why that we kind of, you know, he is who he is and he, you know, he hasn't had the career perhaps we should think he has but well, yeah, one of the things I, I do really love about this film is the kind of the world building going on because there's this constant noise isn't there over the soundtrack of kind of guns going off and jets flying over and for such a film of a limited budget it does feel fairly big doesn't it it does, it does have a kind of a scale to it perhaps which it's budget um, you know something made with that much money you wouldn't have it thought seems it... To, it seems to be able to create an entire world just using yeah. sound and very limited imagery so yeah. uh, that is definitely a testament to his filmmaking so and especially we're talking about the use of sound and he has an extreme extremely good use of sound when he goes from this high tension where everybody's screaming at each other and then it cuts abruptly to an extreme silence in the in the desert and it, it just shows that these are extremely um, polar views of uh, of the entire situation, where we go from one extreme to the other, almost in an abrupt cut. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, when I was watching it again, one of the things I was thinking about, kind of the the, the, the gunfire and the jets and things like that. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I was perhaps thinking the employment was that was slightly more abstract because you don't you don't see any jets and stuff like that and you'll see like a massive vista of the desert and you can hear these gunfires but the camera like moves around you don't actually see anyone firing and i just sort of thought it was more kind of this sort of i don't slightly kind of uh what's the word um abstract way of reinforcing the themes of this kind of constant oppression and danger, even if you know it, not necessarily actually there. It was just a, an audio layer to kind of reinforce this kind of thing that was going on. Because this is another thing as well, isn't it? Because we get some music as well, don't we? Later on, and only a few little kind of scores and things like that. And again, I was sort of coming back to this idea, saying, thinking to myself, well, what am I watching here? You know, because if this was a, you know, if, if if we are watching the documentary made by these people, then there wouldn't be music, would there? At the end, you know, it, it's. But I was thinking more of it as a, like he's, uh, when they are sitting in the trial and we hear gunshots going off, it's more of a prescient thing. Like Yeah, def- yeah, yeah. yeah you saying, yeah. probably get shot when you're released after, out yeah, there, yeah. yeah. I mean, that is the thing about Punishment Party. It is, it's a hopeless film in many yeah. respects, isn't it? I, this is not a film that sort of says at the end, you know, and following this, the McCarran Act has been revoked or blah, de, blah, de, blah. And we talked about it, you know, it's still a very relevant film in many respects. You know, we there is this kind of um, conflict still going on. You know, what what you know, at what expense human rights in the to preserve human rights? And certainly, I think it, it it's a question. I don't think society's got any kind of answers for anytime soon. I think Watkins is kind we of still it, have camps. Yeah, like yeah, we still have camps that surround up these people with 
extreme views who we think are going to do damage to us. So yeah. it's still basically the same thing that's happening today. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's Guantanamo Bay, isn't it? That's the one we all go back to, you know, and it is the sort of, yeah, I'm sure there are extremely dangerous people there. Um, yeah. But likewise, there are people there who, you know, have done nothing wrong and who have of been course, released yeah. and who have done nothing wrong, you know, and who were, you know, tr- you know, we've had like the kind of the Abu Ghraib prison scandal as well. I don't know if you've ever seen the film um, Standard Operating Procedure. Yeah. In which you see, you know, much like the kind of the soldiers and the police in this film, you see ordinary young men and women who are put into this situation and then do things to other human beings, which are horrific, you know, acts of kind of sexual um, humiliation, which these people wouldn't have dreamed of doing. You know, it's not, it's it's just not normal behavior. And yet, you know, Abu Ghraib prison, Guantanamo Bay, they're all there to protect us apparently from this evil. And yet they turn normal human beings into abhorrent you know criminals basically all at the behest of you know you have you know i think it was rumsfeld at the time wasn't it who's you know i i I think is it in that or taxi to the dark side where you see a memo that he's written on basically um imploring the people at guantanamo bay to use more torture and things like that and yeah you sort of see you see it echoed in it you in this film and it goes throughout the time and i i think it's it's very pessimistic. It's very depressing. And, you know, although we've, I think we perhaps might have come across slightly negative about punishment, but I, so I love this film. I'll be completely honest with you. I, you know, I really admire it as a piece of filmmaking, even though I'm kind of unsure how to kind of digest it. But I, I, I yeah, I, I certainly think it's a worthy addition. Yeah. It definitely needs to be, to be seen. It's just that I, I, I think it has a slightly, it makes very salient points, but I think it does so in quite a clumsy manner a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, it is definitely relevant to today, and that was probably the thing I took away from it most, that it feels extremely modern and not dated at all, and sadly very relevant, uh, as long as we have this, these militaristic states around in the world who are fundamental in their views but um, there was a there was a famous experiment in the seventies where uh, a group of students were uh, split into two, where one was the uh, one were the uh, prison yeah. guards and one were the prisoners, and you could see that the whole dynamic of power changed this. They changed their personality into being very uh, obstinate or being very submissive or you're yeah. being very power abusive and it's just a fascinating part of human human development that all along we we have these abilities within us to change into people we never thought we would be Mm. it's just the whole uh, the whole uh, circumstances is what uh, informs how we are as a person yeah and i mean yeah it, you know, the, there are very facts I think that we're having these types of conversations about a film are a testament to how good that film is in many respects and the fact that a film like Punishment Park now like you know it has morphed into this kind of found footage things I, I don't think we'll get films like Punishment Park um, anytime soon in many respects I don't think yeah we it have be made today no and uh, well <laughs> the sort of the ironic thing is I mean you know, this was made of a crew of 10. It was shot on 16 millimeter. The technology's there to go out and make, you know, you can, you could easily, with the technology that we have today, go out and make something very similar. 
to this. But I, I don't think the zeitgeist is is no. uh, is uh, present in no, today. No, I don't think that the I don't think the the uh, what's the word the the atmosphere. I don't think there's yeah. people who who are making films who have that much to say as much as Peter Watkins does. I don't I don't see where you know the, the I don't I can't I couldn't name any directors working at the moment who are like Peter Watkin who make films like him and although you know as we've said you know we do have our kind of reservations and a few caveats about these films I still think it's a great thing that they're there and I think it's it you know certainly you know were I, I was asked the other week to draw up a list of my favorite directors and I put Peter Watkins on there and someone was like, well, who's he? And I said, well, you know, he's, he's this kind of like guy who makes kind of like fake documentaries about kind of, and I can see this person who's like, oh, for fuck's sakes, you know, that sounds boring. And it's like, yeah, I can't think of anyone like that working today. And to have these films, I think, is, you know, something of a blessing. It's just that I I, I, I don't think in, in many respects, you know, Peter Watkins wasn't wanted then really. And I don't think these types of films are particularly wanted now either in terms of kind of like, you know, overtly political, someone like kind of, like, I suppose Oliver Stone might kind of hit that base, but even so, you know, he still kind of works within the kind of, you know, the Hollywood system. Everyone calls him an angry filmmaker, but you know, I don't think he's ever made anything quite as um, explicit as Punishment Park. I mean, so overall, what are your kind of thoughts on Punishment Park? If you, you know, I think we've, we've kind of said as much as we can really say about it, but I mean, you, would you sort of you know, recommend this film? I would recommend it with a asterisk, uh, so to speak, yeah. that you have to be, uh, I think, to enjoy this film, you have to be conscious of the movements that were a part of the late 60s, early 70s in America. Otherwise, you can't get really much out of the film. Um, but it is a an, an important film, I think, to watch, not only for the thematic um, uh, thematic inside the film but also because it is such a different film from what we are given yeah. here today so yeah yeah I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily agree that you should you have to know everything about what's going oh. on at the time I mean I think it's it, I think it, the film will mean more to you if you were to go and do a little bit of homework and like learn about you know some of the characters who you see on the screen and you know who they're kind of who they're echoing in real life but and, to understand why this sort of film yeah, was yeah. made. I feel like you have to understand the Kent State shootings and the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, like you know, like we said before, like Gimme Shelter, I think, is a good film to watch yeah. you know, from from that period. Because it was sort of, you know, it, it does sort of show these sort of like the, just this kind of slow death of idealism. And, you know, and you could sort of see the, the, the people in, you know, in Gimme Shelter are the, are the types who would end up in Punishment Park. You know, that's the the thing, isn't it? You know, you, you, there is that kind of um, uh, kind of thematic carry through. But I mean, I, I, I think it's an amazing film for for, for kind of reasons I've, I've tried to explain, really. I, from just from a purely filmmaking point of view, it is unlike anything that you know, gets made nowadays. And I don't, I, I'm not entirely comfortable with this whole kind of docudrama type kind of thing. I, I do think it does ask a lot of logical questions Um which perhaps might kind of take you out of the experience, but overall, I, I think it's very much worth checking out. And uh, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to slap on on a Saturday evening for to kind of sit there and you know, enjoy yourself with a pizza and a few beers. I think it is something that's a lot more weighty than that. But in a way, I think you know, that is the kind of the tonic to kind of 
you know, the more kind of vapid things, which kind of a lot of people seem to spend a great deal of their time watching. So let's just quickly talk about the disc itself. Now, this was, um, like I said, it was already released on DVD and this is the, the Blu-ray upgrade. Um, I was actually quite impressed with the picture quality, um, bearing in mind it's 16 millimeter blown up to 35. Uh, like I said, this isn't must in my criteria. So they, when they do restorations, you know, they don't suddenly, you know, polish everything up. They just make the best of what's there. I mean, what are your thoughts on it? I think it looks really good. Yeah. It's surprisingly good considering it. Uh, I think the budget was 65,095 when they blew it up to 35 millimeter later. And the picture quality is very, uh, it's pristine actually considering the, uh, the source material. Yeah. I mean, there is inherent noise that you're going to get from filming in a desert with 16 millimeter cameras. Yeah. You know, you are going to get crap on the lens. You're going to get stuff caught in the gate and it's still there. You know, there's still specs and things like that, you know, but you know, they've not kind of, you know, I don't think it takes away from uh, the film. No, I, I, I think it's uh, yeah, it's good. And as well, the sound as well, I think is a vast improvement. I actually saw Punishment Park in the cinema once from a, from a print and it was near on impossible to hear what the people were saying. It was all, it was in a right state. I mean, the film had to be stopped about six times whilst the projectionist, you know, sellotaped it back together. And it, you know, it's a two channel. They haven't, they haven't, this is the other thing as well. I, I, I I'm not a huge fan of when they kind of do film restorations and they take like a two channels, um, sound mix and then turn it into a 5-1 mix I sometimes I like quite like the fact that you know, when you when you just get an improvement of what's already there best example of that I can think is um, the Jaws Blu-ray had like a 7.1 soundtrack and they included the original mono soundtrack and that's that, you know I like that a lot more I think than this kind of artificially created surround thing and you get like it's just a two channel LPCM sound and I, I think it's really good it's kind of removed all the hiss and stuff like that it's very clear because it's quite a loud film at times isn't it as well there's lots of shouting and well there are contrasts between kind of the shouting and the quieter moments but i certainly think um it was uh you know certainly worked there is an introduction from peter watkins on this isn't there and um i think that's quite it's quite interesting um little introduction i mean you put it as a bit self-defensive perhaps yeah <laughs> it seems like um it goes along with what we were talking about uh, with Watkins that he's trying to show everyone that he's dealing with the criticism of the film, which is a remarkable thing that he's, he's addressing the critiques that have been pointed towards the film. But I feel that I would have been more impressed if he had had an actual conversation with someone who was critical towards this film, rather than him sitting there on his chair, reading through the criticisms and then coming up with the answers yeah I, I know what you mean it's it, i always quite find quite interesting when filmmakers do um talk about you know the kind of negative thing because invariably they do come off as being a bit prickish like yeah. i mean Kev, kevin smith was one wasn't it where you know you know, how dare you not see my genius type of kind of you know answer to it and i it, i think peter watkins i mean he I, i've never met the guy but he seems a very 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 serious solemn person all the time you know i i i should I, I, I imagine having a dinner around at his house it'd be you know the conversation would be like you know did you see the match at the weekend it'd be like what do you think of the current state of the media and you know i think it'd be quite heavy to say the least you know i think it'd be you know certainly one where um you'd need your mental faculties about you but no i, I think it's interesting it's good to see him. I, I, i'd like to see him i'd like to see more of him you know he's not some i think he lives in france at the moment i think you don't see him like on the media and he's certainly someone whose opinion I really enjoy you know I, I would like to see him more in the public eye but you know obviously that I don't really think that's going to be um, happening anytime soon the commentary on this disc is very good though isn't it yeah 
It is um, the essay in the booklet. It, it covers most of the things he says on the commentary, but yeah. both are very good. You get an insight from a um, Dr. Joseph... Let me see here. Dr. Joseph A. Gomez, who wrote a book about Peter Watkins. And he has a very wonderful insight into the film, informative and covers many of the different topics, yeah. Yeah, no... Um, I think it's about it for the extras on this. I can't remember. There's a few interviews, isn't there, and stuff. I, um, it's not like... I mean, I would like there to perhaps been a, you know, a new retrospective or something like that. But again, I don't think Master Cinema probably have the money or something like that to uh, commission anything like that. But overall, I think this is a pretty damn solid um, release. Certainly worth um, checking out. It's only... I think you can pick it up on Amazon from England for about £12. And let me just double-check and see if it's, yeah, if it's more region. Bear with me a sec. I can quickly mention that you can also buy these releases at eurekavideo.co.uk slash office slash office date dot html where they are offering all the releases but you don't have to uh, pay for shipping or anything and it's really quite cheap buying from there as well. Yeah, cool. I mean, I just noticed that that the Punishment Part disc is regions A, B and C and um, so, yeah, you will be able you will have no problems playing uh, playing it on foreign... um, countries and definitely yeah i mean it's one of one of my favorite releases so far in the blu-ray collection certainly i think it's a pretty interesting film that kind of deserves to be um well it just deserves for people to be out there in the public eye and people talking about it a little bit more as opposed to um you know who's gonna die in iron man 3 perhaps but yeah um okay and we will be back um very soon with a look at mad detective you can find um me on my other podcast the 24 frames cast at 24 framescast.blogspot.com you can find me on twitter at 24 framescast joachim where can we find you you can find me at twitter and on facebook at the film man okay can you just can you just spell the film man out as well because um i had someone question this the other day the film man with uh, two m's and two n's in the yeah, the Michael Mann type of uh, yeah style, right? Okie doke. That'll be it for this episode. We'll be back soon. Many thanks for listening, and uh, hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>